Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hi, my name is David Rakoff, and I'm going to read a portion of a chapter from my book Half Empty. And the chapter is called The Satisfying Crunch of Dreams Underfoot. Scientist Stephen Jay Gould posited the theory of punctuated equilibrium, which contends that the Earth's creatures can sometimes experience irregular bursts of rapid and radical change. There you are, for example, rooting for grubs in the dirt, pushing aside spongy logs with your ineffectual proboscis, as you and your ancestors have been doing for ten millennia, and suddenly everything changes and surges ahead with a charged developmental fury. At the same time the next year, you're picking up the fat and nutritious larvae between your highly dexterous forefinger and opposable thumb, all the while thinking, hmm... Once I've developed agriculture, I'll dredge these in a little cornmeal and cook them over that fire I just invented. For most of us, though, life is a fairly steady track. Such high-flown dreams of thumbs and cornmeal and fire are adaptive boosts we neither deserve nor could possibly hope to attain in our lifetime. The myth of the overnight success is just that. Only once did I find myself at the center of an evolutionary fluke of such gargantuan proportions. One day a grunt in publishing, and the next ushered past the velvet rope into a whole new life. Allow us to help you down from that tree, Mr. Rakoff. We hope you enjoy your new upright posture, Mr. Rakoff. How about a bigger brain case, Mr. Rakoff? In such an exclusive world, it was a testament to the top-drawer quality of both— that the jumbo shrimp and the baby lamb chops should be the same size. The strawberries were as big as a newborn's head, and the muffins appeared to have been baked in thimbles. Whole carrots were as slender as golf pencils, and the water came in tiny glass bottles more traditionally used to hold ampoules of morphine. It was a Lewis Carroll buffet, the scale of everything either amplified or diminished to signify privilege nothing more so than the fact that no one was eating, not even me. Not because I was blasé. I am never blasé about food, especially free food. I was not eating because I was nervous, standing in that small, chandeliered room, about to sit down for a read-through of the screenplay for a movie that was to begin shooting, a movie in which I had been cast. It was 1995, and I was still working full-time as a propagandist and in-house writer in the book trade. I wrote press releases and the occasional remarks for the publisher. I amused myself by peppering his speeches with ever-nellier references from my own life. It began subtly, but if my stealth campaign proved successful, by the end of the year this married father of children would be welcoming the sales reps with breathless references to watching La Strada while smoking and crying in the balcony of the Paris cinema. It was an easy job and nobody bothered me. It afforded me a paycheck, health insurance, an office and its attendant supplies, and as long as I turned my work around quickly, a good deal of free time in which to do freelance writing assignments. I also very occasionally got to act in the odd downtown production with friends. The casting director of the film saw me in one of them, called me in for an audition, and I got the part. It was a big movie. 
a gynocentric comedy predicated on the scenario where men are cheating bastards and middle-aged women, the goddesses who best them, while cementing their sisterhood with Motown-scored makeover montages, vengeful shopping sprees, warmed-over Lucy and Ethel hijinks, and random humiliations visited upon women who are younger, and therefore by definition stupid whores. It was based on a novel by an author published by my employer, coincidentally, about whom more later, except to say that we were friendly at one time, but she might just be the only person in my entire life about whom I've said something purposely, gratuitously injurious, and deeply unkind. I was one of the few people in the room who was not known. There were three iconic female stars, a supporting cast of respected actors, and a fearsome producer with a talent for hits and a reputation for being the devil incarnate not a room in which to be seen eating. My presence there would have been the classic Cinderella story if, instead of being delivered from her grimy scullery to the carefree life of the palace, our dainty-footed heroine was a thirty-something guy who had left his evil stepsisters to go off and play a mincing fairy interior decorator. The step-and-fetched aspects of my part extended beyond the sexual to the ethnic. My part was that of an ersatz food-court Latin of indeterminate national origin. Even his name, Duarto, does not exist in Italian, Spanish, or Portuguese, a testament to the deep research for which our author was known. Snippy ectomorphs like Duarto have been a staple of the movies since the early talkies. You have seen us, I am sure. Generally, we are slim. Our hair is often brilliantined and pasted down like a phonograph record, molded directly to the skull. We have been known to sport the occasional eyebrow-pencil mustache. Our jobs tend toward the mildly creative and powerless. Tango instructor, wedding consultant, Hayes office-approved, neutered gigolo. Also traditionally, we exhibit two modes of behavior, both of them manifestations of displeasure. There is our comically outraged ethnic or sexual pride, the former eliciting from us a fiery chiquita banana, You insult my country? Which, as we have established with a name like Duarto, does not actually exist and is therefore not really insultable, and the latter a dubiously macho defense of the molested honor of our woman, our own interest in whom would have to increase tenfold to reach the level of repelled. The far more common state of Eduardo, however, is one of peevish boredom and affronted aesthetics. Dios mío, where did you get that agonizing side table? This makes us speak in a kind of enervated drawl that broadcasts to all the world that we would much rather be anywhere else than here, preferably somewhere holding a teacup poodle while being the willing recipient of vigorous anal sex. And all of it with an accent. I based mine on that of a fellow with whom I went to college. It was 1982, and as best as I can remember, he majored in Peppermint Lounge with a minor in Pyramid Club. If you asked him where he was from, he responded with, I am from Europe. Okay, screw you, I am from Venezuela, which wasn't even true. He was Israeli. The screenplay reading went well. In addition to Duarto, I was pinch-hitting for three small parts. People were extremely nice to me. I made Diane Keaton giggle at one point. Bette Midler and I talked about her daughter's school. Sarah Jessica Parker and Victor Garber took me out for a post-traumatic drink at the Waldorf Astoria Bar, and I walked home through the rain, tipsy and thrilled. I had been granted admittance into a club I'd no right to be in. Somehow, despite my lack of formal training and my decidedly slim and exclusively off-off-Broadway resume, the dues I'd paid in other realms, about of illness here, 
years logged in day jobs I didn't enjoy there, can you imagine such suffering, could be converted somehow and cashed in for a flight to this new and coveted realm. This role would lead to others, and I would never have to go back to the publishing house. Certainly the folks on the movie made me think so. The director took me out for a drink one evening, and like new lovers who endlessly narrate the thoroughly unremarkable details of their early meeting that happened just three weeks prior, he and I fondly recapitulated the out-of-nowhere story of my being cast. My part was at best a cameo, and they made me feel like the lead. I was drunk on potential fame. For the next few weeks I led a double life that was cinematic itself— spending my days at the office but dashing off during lunch hours and evenings after work for rehearsal, makeup and hair tests, wardrobe appointments, where I was outfitted in a pair of trousers so tight that it would not be until years later when I had a hemorrhoidal ligation that I would experience such constriction again. When principal photography finally began, I cashed in all my vacation days, thinking as I left the office, I'll be back <laughs> to clean up my office, suckers. My first day of shooting was out in Queens. I was given a trailer, well, a slice of a trailer, the union required minimum of space, called a honey wagon, which I would later find out is the term they use for those trucks that suck human waste out of septic tanks, which I would also find out later isn't that odd a coincidence. We were filming a scene between Bette Midler and myself, set in my decorator's atelier. Duarto seemed to favor a maximalist aesthetic of paisley throws on overstuffed furniture, embroidered pillows, fat silk tassels, and garden urns. Bette Midler was bookish and friendly to the extent she felt comfortable being. We got along fine. That's not meant to damn with faint praise. Quite the opposite. It's very strange to be around the visually famous. It must be tremendously difficult for those whose very faces make up an integral part of the landscape. Everyone wants something from them, even those people who would deny it or don't know it themselves. Usually it's nothing more than to be seen by the celebrity. You're always conscious of where they are in the room. I once watched Jacqueline Onassis wait for an elevator, and the heightened performance of casualness of everyone around her paying her no notice had about as much in common with ignoring someone as a Father's Day department store window resembles an actual barbecue. I had no illusions that what was for me a peak experience was for Ms. Midler just another day, and likely one she would never remember, if I could manage to get through it without vomiting on myself in public, which, it turns out, there is more than one way of doing. Things began promisingly, but as the day progressed, something felt slightly off. I was not used to camera acting and was unprepared for just how different it felt from being on stage. The lack of sequence, the fragmentation, the waiting around, the crew standing so close, and the equipment hovering just overhead. I became afraid to move, and I lost my coordination, fumbling, looking incredibly forced. It only got worse. It was like poorly following a pattern for a shirt or a set of plans for a building. I was making small errors that compounded themselves, so that by midway through the process, I had created a misshapen garment with three sleeves, a house with no door. Apparently I was the only one who thought so. The director seemed pleased, going so far as to tell me at lunch, I think you have a future in film. I received similarly kind words from the horde of producers milling about, a cadre of young men on whom I had never clapped eyes before that day. We finished up, I returned to my trailer, and peeled off my tight pants. 
I almost passed out as half of my blood supply rushed precipitously away from my heart and brain down into my legs. I changed back into my street clothes and stood on the curb outside the honey wagon and waited for the van back to Manhattan. Bette Midler's car drove up and stopped about eight feet away. I could see her in the back seat, studying the next day's script. The limo was long enough that her reading lamp did not disturb the driver. Her hair was wound up in a post-wig Nefertiti contraption, rising from her head like a soft bongo drum. She'll see me standing here, I thought. She'll tell her driver to open the door and I'll get in and we'll ride back to Manhattan, chuckling ruefully all the way about this crazy business. We'll return to her rambling apartment. It'll be the maid's night off and we'll eat leftovers from the icebox, cold chicken and pie, milk from a glass bottle. Then I'll say, thinking out loud more than anything else, I'll say, if only we could turn this into an all-singing, all-dancing musical picture. Why, that's a marvelous idea, she'll exclaim. Then we'll stay up the whole night at the piano, working out a terrific bunch of socko numbers, catchy songs, and snappy dance routines. But the divine Miss M never glanced my way as her car drove off. You know that old principle that says that wishing will not make it so, but stating your worst fears just might? Okay, it's not an old principle, I made it up myself, but only through direct and repeated observational proof. I have seen more times than I can discount where the verbalized worry was precisely both catalyst and fuel. The pile of rags, can of oil, match, and ready supply of oxygen, all in one. In my own life, I've scotched countless encounters by being far too vocal with my anxiety. I can't help myself. When I spoke to anyone connected with the movie, from the director or the producer to my agent, to anyone with an unobstructed ear canal, truth be told, I always joked, have I been fired yet? So when my agent called me the very next morning before I was to leave to meet the van back out to Queens and said without preamble, I'm sorry, my friend, you're off the movie. I jovially riffed with him for fully five minutes before I realized that he was not joking. I once almost let a friend board a transatlantic flight without telling her that she had unwittingly tucked her dress into the back of her pantyhose. In the end, I took pity on her, but for the brief period before I did, it was exquisite to watch her walk around that way. It turns out to be somewhat less so when it is your ass that's poking out in duty-free. I might have seen the writing on the wall if I'd been anything other than a complete neophyte. Years later, I learned that it was common Hollywood knowledge that when someone tells you that they think you have a future in the movies, as the director told me at lunch that day, the unspoken follow-up is understood to be, but not this movie. He told me at lunch. That means they already knew by noon that I was a terrible mistake. That they even let me continue with the afternoon's shooting seems, in retrospect, a courtesy. A few days later, the director sent me a kind note that read, Dear David, I am very sorry, but as far as I am concerned, you have just had your reservations on the Titanic cancelled. You should look at it that way, too. They replaced me with Bronson Pinchot. About the author who wrote the book that the movie was based on and about whom I said that terribly unkind thing, I never saw her again after being knocked off the movie. Not long thereafter, she found fault with the publishing company as a whole and moved on to more lucrative pastures. A few years after that, she went in for some plastic surgery and she never came to, an untimely, wasteful, but thankfully probably painless end.
Once, when leaving a party, my friend the hostess turned to the woman standing beside her, Upper East Side Ash Blonde, Black Velvet Alice Band, Gold Elsa Peretti Earrings Pearl Necklace, and she said, You should really meet David at some other time. He's very funny. And the blonde looked me up and down appraisingly and purred, Yes, I bet I could have a lot of bitchy fun with you. I could imagine which of my signifiers had led her to this conclusion. No doubt one of the visual cues I give off that had initially gotten me cast as Duarto in the first place. Whichever it was, I really didn't care, because with barely a pause between her words and mine, I corrected her. Oh, no. I am a homosexual, but I'm not a bitch. It was very important to me that this woman I had never met know this. I value kindness in myself and others. I try to remain super vigilant about my targets and make extra sure that my sometimes barbed comments are deserved and in response to some genuine malefaction. Perhaps my insistence on this nuance is waffling self-delusion, given what I have said in print about public figures like Barbara Bush, Robin Williams, and Karl Lagerfeld, to name just three. And what I'm about to tell you with no pride weakens my claim to kindness to the point of pitiful. Before the author died, she was lingering in a twilight of an anesthesia-induced vegetative state and the ether was a crackle with a volley of emails from the legions to whom she had done dirt. All of us whose kindness she had repaid with cruelty over the years could speak of nothing else. One of my colleagues wrote, You'd have thought the doctors would have gotten the ether right the first eleven times she had that procedure. To which I replied, Do you think her being in a coma will affect the quality of her writing any? To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.